This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In the universe of value-based care transformation, there has been one disease that represents a metaphorical black hole where the gravitational pull of fee-for-service is so strong that nothing can escape. These patients experience the fullest depths of pain and despair, and this chasm is so deep and wide that there's only darkness. And you may have guessed it, but we're talking about chronic kidney disease, a condition that impacts 37 million people in the U.S., and those that are inflicted with CKD are dealing with immense pain. And and the Medicare reimbursement system is designed to fail this patient population. In fee-for-service medicine, we wait until patients succumb to end-stage kidney disease where they crash and burn, and they need costly dialysis to stay alive for a little while longer. And because of this flawed reimbursement model, Medicare pays over $125 billion for people with all stages of renal disease, which is about 20% of all Medicare spending. And unless we go upstream and we start engaging patients prior to kidney failure, success in value-based kidney care will be limited. We must give life to this patient population and the race to value. Listeners, this giving of life is exactly what DaVita Kidney Care is doing. In fact, the name DaVita is an adaptation of the Italian phrase for giving life. In value-based care, DaVita works with healthcare payers and providers to develop and implement care delivery models that focus on improving outcomes and reducing costs for chronic kidney disease patients. I'm so excited to share with you that our guest this week is Dr. Adam Weinstein, the Chief Medical Information Officer for DaVita. And Dr. Weinstein works across numerous lanes, helping bridge the intersection of IT, clinical nephrology, and healthcare policy. He's focused on delivering IT tools that take advantage of DaVita's clinical data and help nephrologists and DaVita teammates deliver the best care possible. A kidney doctor for Maryland, Dr. Weinstein is passionate about slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease in patients. This is such an outstanding conversation with one of the true innovators in technology and clinical care. Well, it's another great episode of Race to Value. We appreciate your support week in and week out listening to these conversations and applying the insights and the knowledge in your respective organizations. Please make sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you don't miss any future episodes. That's racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. And if you're so inclined, we'd love to get a, a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. So let's now hear from Dr. Adam Weinstein as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Adam, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate being uh, invited. Well, Adam, I remember when we had our first conversation, and I really resonated with your energy. You have such enthusiasm for the work that you do, and you mentioned even that you pinch yourself every day since you're fulfilling your biggest dream and living through your passion. And When it comes to my role as a value-based care evangelist, I feel the same way. I even joke to people when they ask me how I'm doing. uh, I I tell them I'm living the dream. I'm the dream weaver. And, you know, weaver, of course, is my last name. And that makes for a a great saying, but I, I really feel it's true. I mean, doing meaningful work to transform healthcare is a dream come true. And it's immensely gratifying. And I know you feel the same way. And 
as we start our conversation today, I'd love to learn more about your spiritual orientation towards the healthcare work that you do. Could you provide a brief background for our listeners and how your lived experiences and positive mindset have shaped your work as a nephrologist, healthcare executive, and technology innovator? Yeah, sure. Thank you. It's a, it's a great question. And it's something I like talking about a lot because I, as you mentioned, I feel extremely fortunate to have the role I have. So I'm the chief medical information officer at DaVita, which is, you know, one of the two largest dialysis organizations in the United States. But, um, you know, the path to get here was definitely not linear. I have a background in political science that has put me in a position to, to be involved with various healthcare policy, uh, both within the state of Maryland, where I, I live, as well as at the national level through various nephrology advocacy organizations. And I, I also have a background in technology. I, I've been involved in, in IT, and, and as my healthcare career has evolved, more, more specifically in healthcare IT. And in the last couple of years, I've been able to kind of weave all of those things together into the role I have at DaVita. And what it gives me, I think, a great opportunity to do is, is capitalize on all of them. That is, help develop uh, DaVita's IT tools, help comment on various national policies, and be involved in a variety of advocacy organizations outside of my role in DaVita. And of course, I get to play with cool technology along the way. This obviously lends itself quite well to all sorts of things that are happening within the nephrology space with regards to value-based care and alternative payment arrangements. Adam, I'd love to dive more into this imperative for value-based kidney care. We've got almost 40 million people in the U.S. who are suffering from kidney disease, and it's currently the ninth leading cause of death. Treating kidney disease costs the Medicare program $130 billion, and although patients with end-stage kidney failure account for only 1% of the Medicare population, they're actually responsible for over 7% of all Medicare spending. And it seems like despite these massive costs associated with kidney disease, we currently treat it in an almost entirely reactive and uniform way. We don't have an emphasis on holistic care. However, DaVita is really leading the way in providing value-based kidney care across the continuum with its integrated kidney care model. And the vision of the IKC is to provide coordinated care to help delay CKD progression, to smooth the transition from CKD to end-stage kidney disease, and then to optimize the ESKD treatment. And this care model emphasizes predictive analytics for early patient identification, and timely intervention, care coordination, patient education to help patients manage their health, and active collaboration between nephrologists and care teams. And DaVita's IKC approach has shown it can reduce the total cost of care, as demonstrated by a 17% savings in addressable costs over five years. And holistic kidney care has also demonstrated a 48% decrease in hospital admission rates, a 23% decrease in mortality for SNP patients, and a 74 net promoter score, which is really quite great. Can you provide for our listeners a better understanding of how DaVita defines value-based care and, and how it's exemplified in the IKC? Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel, for the question. And I'll tell you, I could probably spend the next hour just talking without any more questions on this topic, but I'm trying to keep it relatively brief. So you know, as as I think we all recognize, DaVita is a dialysis company, or at least started as a dialysis company, and we've evolved our philosophy more towards kidney care, which is a broader capture of our patients. Because as you pointed out, once a patient is on dialysis, a lot of the dyes have been cast in terms of that patient's health. And I think we've recognized for a long time that if we're going to meaningfully impact the, the trajectory of health of our patients, we need to do so, one, in coordination with nephrologists. That is, uh, nephrologists aren't employed by DaVita. They, they are independent healthcare providers. And we need to do so upstream, that is, before they end up on dialysis. And, and that's been really challenging until the last few years, especially as uh, CMMI has started to deploy a variety of payment models that have given us both the financial incentives aligned with the doctors and various safe harbors to build the various business structures you need to work with patients before they are on dialysis, such that you can hopefully slow the progression of kidney disease and yield uh, better outcomes, whether it's for patients who are not yet on dialysis with chronic kidney disease or those who then are on dialysis for end-stage renal disease through a variety of means. You mentioned a lot of the things that we cite as our successes and, our, and, and the demonstration that we've been able to be successful in this space. But, but in my mind, all of this comes down to making sure that we have 
the right data, the right relationships with our various providers, and then of course the right relationships with patients such that we can help get them what they need, whatever it is that they're doing in terms of their health status and the various activities that are gonna need it, be needed to alter their path of progression to end-stage kidney disease. So I guess our tools that we would uh, cite as, as being primarily helping deliver on this area fall into a number of categories. And so number one, you know, there's there's the people that we employ. And so within our integrated kidney care program, which is the the program that we we look to to take advantage of these various uh, CMMI projects that are uh, alternative payment models, we have nurses, nurse practitioners, care coordinators, and those folks work with partnering physicians and practices who are primarily responsible for delivering the chronic kidney disease management to the patients. Those groups of people work together to identify high-risk patients. As you suggested, that's done through a variety of means, but some of them are predictive models. Some of them are patients who are identified by the practitioners, but either way, patients who are identified are then singled out for uh, a deeper dive into what's going on in their world. And, and all of this comes down to managing a patient, which means you need to understand the context of the patient's health, what stressors there are in their life, what health stressors there are, and what resources need to be applied such that you can then ultimately help get them the correct medications, the correct education. And then if and when it comes time for dialysis, get them onto the modalities of dialysis or the, the types of dialysis that suit them best. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't know if the listeners are aware or not, but there's two types of dialysis. There's dialysis that you can do at home and there's dialysis that can be done in an in-center or within a, a facility, a dialysis facility. And, and we, we strive to get as many patients on home dialysis since it offers significant advantages in both quality and quantity of life for patients. Um, but it's not right for everybody. Either way, giving patients the necessary education to help them make decisions around these health choices such that whatever happens to them, they're afforded the opportunity to feel empowered and also, of course, live their best life, if you will. Well, Adam, I appreciate the overview of DeVita's holistic integrated kidney care model. And as I understand, the IKC utilizes various Alternative payment models, as you mentioned, that include shared savings, fully delegated value-based payment, and of course, traditional fee-for-service arrangements. DeVita IKC has been fully capitated in the industry's longest-running Medicare Advantage ESKD chronic condition special needs plan since 2011, and it now operates nine ESKD CSNPs, three ESKD seamless care organizations and more than a dozen programs with commercial payers and health systems. And beyond the IKC program, DeVita has participation in payment model initiatives such as the Comprehensive End-Stage Renal Disease Care Model, or CEC, which is a Medicare bundle payment program and aims to improve quality care and reduce expenditures for beneficiaries with ESKD. And DeVita, as I just mentioned, are participating in ESCOs, which are a type of accountable care organization that's focused on patients with ESKD. DeVita also participates in the MSSP ACO program, the ESRD quality incentive program, the Kidney Care First or KCF program, the Comprehensive Kidney Care Contracting Model, CKCC. There's a lot of payment models here. And in your work as a nephrologist, healthcare executive, and technology leader, you've become quite the expert on payment models. And I'm hoping you can provide some clarity on this alphabet soup and value-based kidney care. I'd love to get your general take on all these value-based payment models for kidney disease. I mean, do we have too many? And ultimately, what are the ideal components of a kidney disease payment model, and how can we design them to align incentives with all actors across the care continuum? I mean, since we only have about one-third to one-half of nephrologists participating in VBC arrangements, and that only accounts for about 10% of CKD patients, how can we bring scale to value-based payment innovation in kidney care? So number one, many of the models that, that you mentioned are sort of progressive over time. That is, for instance, the ESCO models are now shut down. And 
The real focus are, are those that fall under the CEC model, which is essentially CKCC and KCF. But, you know, nephrology is a acronym uh, nightmare. There's tons of acronyms, both in clinical as well as administrative realms, as you so clearly highlighted with the, uh, with the question there. I think the bigger question that you're asking really comes about, A, you know, are these models getting to where we want to be? And, and what would be a better choice around these models, perhaps some tweaking of the existing models to make them either uh, broader in terms of their impact or more meaningful in terms of their impact. So let me let me start by saying that, you know, it has been a, a, a 15 to 20 year process of iterating various risk bearing arrangements such that patients who are chronically ill, that is patients with kidney disease, are looked at more thoroughly, more frequently, and beyond simply the care provided in a more fragmented fee-for-service environment. As I think we all recognize, when a, when a patient is, is in a fee-for-service environment, the care is largely grouped around the office visit. And, and so many of our patients, that is the, the nephrology patient, have numerous comorbid conditions, diabetes, hypertension being the most common, but also heart failure and, and often COPD. And, and they're, they're a bundle of unfortunate comorbidities that require complex chronic disease management. And to do that effectively requires really more than just the typical office visit. It requires a coordinated effort by both the, the nephrologist, but really primary care doctors, pulmonologists, cardiologists, rheumatologists, whatever else is going with the patient. And as a result, what, what we found is that the, the broader the care team, the, the better aligned the incentives are for seeing patients with a certain periodicity, engaging patients amongst not just what they come to the office needing, but against a checklist of known best practices. And then of course, building the necessary data system such that you can keep track of these patients and keep track of their both interval and absolute outcomes in terms of these disease states is, is absolutely critical for success. And what we've seen is a, a slow but increasing progression of these programs that capture more and more of those elements over time. And so the most uh, recent programs that were instituted by CMMI in, say, 2020-2021, which is KCF and CKCC, really do a great job in, in, in aligning organizations that are oftentimes not allowed to work together as freely as they'd want. That is, a practitioner in nephrology, so a, a nephrologist in a nephrology practice, with a entity that uh, helps coordinate care. That's, in our case, DaVita's Integrated Kidney Care Program and perhaps a transplant center in, in many instances as well. And those organizations are given the space, call it um, you know, a, a safe harbor from a legal standpoint, but, but more importantly, the, the philosophic alignment to say, hey, how can we work together to deliver on this promise of better coordinated care in the effort to take patients and get them to the right outcomes? That is, are they getting all the appropriate treatments? And if and when they, and with end-stage renal disease, are they being given every opportunity to choose the appropriate kinds of dialysis, the appropriate transplant options for them, and in some instances, ensure that they've had the appropriate counseling for end-of-life care, if that's appropriate. I would say that, you know, it, 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 is, it is getting better. That is, the, the programs that we're working on today have many features that we've asked for through the years. And when I say we, I mean both DaVita and the nephrology community writ large. Um, is it perfect? Of course not. Broader participation by other specialties would be great. That's a very big challenge given the marketplace of healthcare. And as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, how small a population this represents relative to, say, the entire population of heart failure patients or the entire population of, primary, of a primary care doctor's patients. The lead times on these programs sometimes is shorter than I would like as an IT person. Integrating data sources is very complex, and it, it's very expensive as well. And as a result, it usually takes many months to build the relationships and then, of course, the technical connections such that this kind of data is available and usable. These programs tend to have short run times, especially from the time from which they're announced to the time to when they start. And it's often hard to both build the legal entities, that is the value-based care structures that can then provide these services, and then on top of it, the IT resources that are needed to deliver the information at the right place in the right time. And then lastly, um, you know, I, I think there's still some clinical nebulousness. That is, the notion of progressing through kidney disease is, is very individual in any given patient. And so for physicians to feel maximally fulfilled, you, you'd want to have a, a bit longer program in place such that they feel that their population of patients really is demonstrating at a population level a difference in terms of outcomes. 
and and so for for you know three to five year models that that may be a little short in terms of time frame to show those larger clinical impacts that you want but certainly on an individual patient level you are able to see the impact of how these increased resources result in patients that you know would not otherwise have access to either the right education the right information or perhaps ultimately the right choice for dialysis transplant etc um, that you do see that on an individual basis so I, I I think you know what what you're hearing is that I think we're trying to figure this out when I say we I mean you know the government, uh, private payers, nephrologists, other organizations like DeVita who are providing both dialysis as well as the integrated care models. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a messy marketplace in terms of just all the players. And, and it's hard to coordinate all of those, especially in a system that's very much designed for fee-for-service. Adam, that's a that's some great insights into the challenges that we're facing with the current payment models and really appreciate that. And you know, as a health policy advocate, I know you've got a, a lot more insights across the industry, and I know you've been involved on the national scene, and I wanted to ask you about your role on the American Medical Association's Relative Value Scale Update Committee, which is otherwise known as RUC, or the RUC Committee. And the RUC represents the entire medical profession, with 22 of its 32 members being appointed by major national medical specialty societies. And your appointment is in representation of the Renal Physicians Association. Now, I've heard concerns expressed over the years that Medicare may rely far too heavily on RUC recommendations when setting payment amounts for different physician services. And this may be because of the seemingly overrepresentation of specialties over primary care, which in turn places more value on the technical aspects of physician services that reward procedural intensity. And this is in contrast to the systemic undervaluation of cognitive services that require critical thinking, such as evaluation and management in the office setting. And because Medicare relative values are also used by Medicaid and private insurers, any distortions in payment that are created by the RUC process ripple through the entire healthcare system. And we know that since transitioning from fee-for-service systems toward one that links payment to quality and outcomes, is a major focus of the Medicare program. I'm interested in how you see the role of the RUC evolving in years to come. Will the transition of value-based care require us to rethink how we determine payment amounts for all of the thousands of CPT codes that are utilized to capture services rendered in care delivery? The Relative Value Update Committee is probably one of the more complex things I found myself involved with over the last decade. And so let me let me try and, and pull that the questions in there apart as best I can. The RUC is a complex but necessary means by which to value physician work. There are, I guess, you know, numerous ways to look at time, intensity, and other activities that go into what physicians do. The work of the RUC is to try and create a, a, a system that accounts for everything from psychotherapy, to neurosurgery, from dialysis to heart transplants. And, and as you know, just when I say those various procedures and, and activities, they're, they're, they're not apples to apples comparison. And so breaking things down into its component elements, creating a relatively objective means by which to measure the, the intensity and the effort being put into that work for the physicians is absolutely critical if we're gonna have a payment system that is based on RVUs. Um, as I've always said, if the RUC did not exist, CMS would have to do something like create the RUC so it could figure out how to value all of the things that it pays for. It is obviously not perfect, and some of the criticisms that you, you highlight are certainly, I think, uh, fair and, and represent the, the difference between uh, cognitive work, which is uh, you know falls into a limited number of CPT codes, and I think some of the, the, the more uh, voluminous Inter or surgical or, or procedural codes, um, but, but I don't know how to solve that, and that's outside my purview. I am, I am representing nephrology on behalf of the Renal Physicians Association on the RUC, and I do my best to ensure that I uh, play a fair and reasonable role and an objective observer and an objective participant when I participate on the committees and the work that I do for them. Having said that, the, the RUC is really about creating the relative value system or the RVUs. And as we get into value-based care, there will be some tension because some of the payments within value-based care are set based on RVU values that were established by the RUC. 
Uh, but I think we'll see some evolution over time. Um, that is, you know, the value of caring for a patient and the value avoiding, uh, of avoiding a bad outcome of one sort or another has some inherent easily quantifiable dollar value as well as quality of life value for the patient. And so I think as we move toward more risk-based payment models, you're going to see a, a, a perhaps a larger separation from the traditional RVU values. But but it's all to be determined. I mean, this stuff is going to take probably decades to sort out, is my estimation, while the programs will continue to evolve slowly. You know, my sense is that you're going to have fee-for-service healthcare for a subset of the American population for all the reasons that you mentioned, that is, it's the you know, private payers, it's CMS at some level, but CMS has a goal to move many, many of its patients into some sort of value-based care arrangement. And I think they are, will in time have to figure out how to appropriately value, not just the procedural activities, but also the cognitive activities that go into the care coordination and ultimately the quality of life improvement and cost avoidance that comes with those kind of capitated systems. But it's really hard to predict how that's gonna play out exactly based on where I sit today. Well, Adam, I, I uh, really appreciate the the insights on the on your involvement with the RUC committee and you know how it supports industry and uh, payment and uh, just your thoughts about you know our transition at a national level to value based care and I, I now wanted to you know talk to you a little bit about disparities that we see in in uh, healthcare costs with uh, CKD population. I mean, there's several factors that contribute to disparity in Medicare costs for patients with CKD. And you mentioned one earlier, which is the prevalence of comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. And these conditions often require expensive medical interventions and treatments and can significantly drive up healthcare costs for CKD patients. Another contributing factor is the need for regular and often frequent medical appointments and treatments such as dialysis and transplantation, uh, which can be costly and time consuming. You know, additionally, CKD patients often require very expensive medications, specialized dietary supplements that can further drive up healthcare costs. And there's also a disparity in Medicare reimbursement rates for certain services related to CKD. For example, Medicare reimburses at a, at a higher rate for in-center hemodialysis treatment compared to at-home dialysis treatment despite the evidence suggesting that at-home dialysis may be a more cost-effective and preferred treatment for patients. And, and then we also see that there's cost disparities with CKD that are inextricably linked with racial disparities. I mean, you know, Black Americans are three and a half more like three and a half times more likely than white Americans to experience kidney failure. And Black Americans are less likely to get home dialysis or get a kidney transplant than whites. So with all that in mind, you know, how can we best create more parity in CKD medical spend comparable to other chronic conditions? And how does the equity imperative and the broader value movement create more of an impetus to address inequities in both cost and clinical outcomes? Well, Eric, I'll tell you, that there, there's, I think, a, a number of things woven into that question. So, so let me let me start by by talking about I think the 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 racial and ethnic disparities that you highlighted because in my mind one of the key advantages of a value based care arrangement is that it, it it tends to find the highest risk patients based on a variety of indicators. Some of them are predictive models, some of them are not. And as you point out, it it would, if applied appropriately, identify these patients who are currently not well served or not as well served as we would like. And so the value-based care arrangements in my mind are one step toward solving some of the inequity problems. But but you're absolutely right. Um, so much of kidney disease is is the end result of what I call socioeconomic disparities. That is, it, it is the end result of a combination of uh, access to healthcare, health literacy, uh, food issues, comorbidities, obviously some element of, of, of genetics is probably involved at some level. But at the end of the day, I think it's incumbent upon us as nephrologists and nephrology care providers to, to do what we can in terms of creating more equitable situations, whether that's ensuring that our education and other efforts are culturally sensitive and culturally contextualized so that patients who, who, who represent or are in these minorities are, are better taken care of at the earlier stages of chronic kidney disease. It involves ensuring that we're, we're teaching the appropriate amounts of 
a cultural contextual understanding of health to our providers and ensuring that we're building programs that are, are better represented in those communities. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's probably no one answer to solve all of these problems, but I do think it's the ability to deliver appropriately built programs within the communities in which the patients are living. In a broader level, I, I always talk about healthcare being a local sport, even when you work for a large national company, the need to build local programs as part of the larger, for instance, the integrated care program where you know, we have people that work in the different communities with the practices. Um, that's the kind of first steps that it takes to build the structural organization to understand the communities that you're working in. So anyway, I, I don't know if that addresses the question fully or not, but but I can tell you that it's certainly on our minds and certainly uh, something that I think value-based care can help. Well, Adam, I wanted to further explore equity and health. And here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value, we're advocating for reskilling and upskilling of the workforce for this emerging era and value-based care. And, you know, we recognize that you can't have equity in health without equity and access and attainment of education for underserved learner populations. We have to think about, you know, how to reskill and upskill the workforce at scale and also provide pipelines of talent that is diverse and equitable and inclusive, where the workforce actually mirrors the ethnic characteristics and attributes and culture of the population being served. So you can provide culturally competent care and which research has shown and improves clinical care outcomes. And, you know, given some of the disparities that we see that fall along racial lines and also just the immense uh, challenges right now in, in, in workforce. There was a, a recent survey of health system uh, CEOs, and for the first time, workforce shortages and workforce engagement was the number one issue right now. I mean, everyone's reeling right now from costly turnover, finding adequate nursing. And, you know, it seems like in the uh, kidney care space, there's a real innovative opportunity to create uh, nephrology-specific nursing residence programs and provide hands-on clinical experience and and really find ways to provide an enablement of the workforce to, to create the generational and economic lift that's needed uh, for people that are getting into the, the, the clinical and uh, allied health professions, but also really um, provide the the resourcing that's needed to um, provide uh, culturally competent interdisciplinary care teams. So I, I'd love to just get you know some of your insights on just the importance of workforce and where that aligns with uh, the need to really address some of these systemic inequities that have been so persistent in the healthcare system for far too long. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and just you know for total transparency, it's a little outside my lane in terms of what I do day to day at Davida, but I can certainly speak to the fact that within Davida and then more broadly within the healthcare world, uh, I think you've hit upon probably the single most important trust building issue that I'm aware of, which is are the people who take care of me, if I'm the patient, people that I know, people that are like me people that communicate comfortably with me and make me feel safe and protected. Within DeVita, you know, we too, like I think the rest of the healthcare world, have suffered from the, the labor shortages that took place during the pandemic for all the reasons that that happened. Uh, we have continued to evolve our efforts at ensuring well-staffed dialysis facilities by putting in place a variety of programs that allow our teammates, which is what we call our employees, uh, the opportunity to both have a job and then grow within that job. And so many of our employees work in the communities that they live. Um, as you know, we have something like 2,800 dialysis units throughout the United States. Again, all healthcare is local. And, and within those facilities, we have a wide range of, of career opportunities. It could be everything from a patient care technician, a PCT, to a, a registered nurses who oversee dialysis on the floor, to dietitians and social workers and a variety of administrative roles that help organize and deliver care throughout the communities in which our facilities are located. Davida has put in place a, a variety of educational and career advancement opportunities that attempt to make people feel like they have a career path irrespective of what it is they want to do. I am aware that other health organizations do this, but I think it all gets to what you're saying, which is 
how do we how do we get people into healthcare? How do we make them feel like they have a a place in the healthcare community that isn't just meeting their needs today, but meeting whatever their long term career goals are, and giving them opportunities to have all of the things you would expect: a living wage, quality of life, all of those things as well. It is a tough set of balances, to be honest. Um, you know, I I as a physician recognize how much burnout is impacting physicians. That same burnout, that same clinical fatigue comes when you're a nurse working in a hospital or a respiratory therapist managing patients in an intensive care unit, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the demand for healthcare is enormous. And so building those pipelines is critical. And for all the reasons you've talked about in terms of what the good peripheral benefits of that is, which is helping patients feel like they are needed, cared for, and uh, appropriately uh, guided through the healthcare system, which is obviously extraordinarily complex, such that you have this podcast talking about one aspect of it. Adam, thanks for that. I, I want to circle back to some of where the conversation has been so far and, and talk about the progressive state of chronic kidney disease. And the, we know there are five stages with each one progressing to further kidney degradation until you finally lose kidney function altogether. And, and to truly drive change in kidney care, the incentives need to move upstream from where they've been focused on renal replacement therapies to become more focused on early diagnosis and interventions before kidney failure. And as I understand, approximately 90% of people who, who have CKD are not even aware of it. In fact, one of every two people with very low kidney function and who are not on dialysis don't know they have CKD. The National Kidney Foundation even estimates that one of every three adults, some 80 million people, is at risk for CKD. And chronic kidney disease is the most under-recognized public health crisis in this country. And now with 37 million people suffering, it seems like it's time to focus on early detection so that interventions can happen earlier and slow the progression of the disease. In a recent article in Nephrology News and Issues, you stated the following, quote, effective AI can be used to help predict the likelihood of a future event for a patient, such as progression of CKD to ESKD or the likelihood of a hospitalization. But to get the most out of predictions from an AI algorithm, we need clinical experts to interpret that information and apply processes within their practices to drive meaningful patient interventions, end quote. I'd love to hear you elaborate on how DaVita is approaching early detection and prevention in its care model. And to what extent are you utilizing advanced AI to identify at-risk members or clinical decision support via evidence-based clinical pathways to better support identification and management of early stage CKD patients. Yeah, thank you for that, Daniel. It's a, it's a I think you know probably one of the the areas that I'm I'm most passionate about, which is as you suggested, you know, kidney disease is is more often than not a secondary illness. It's secondary to diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. Other certainly other rheumatologic diseases are are, are out there as well, but but certainly diabetes and hypertension are the most common diseases. And, and I think, as you also pointed out, it doesn't hurt. Most patients don't know they have kidney disease because the things that tell us their kidneys aren't working well is lab data that reflects the ability of their kidneys to clean dirt out of their bloodstream and the elevated levels of dirt, which would indicate their kidneys are not cleaning well enough, don't cause any significant clinical problem until their kidneys are very, very sick. And so the screening activities that are required are largely lab-based. It means that patients with chronic diseases uh, should be seeing their primary care doctor early on in their states of kidney disease to ensure they're getting lab work to monitor their kidney function. Fortunately, that lab work is, is very routine, but um, meaning it's part of the existing chemistry panels and other kinds of routine lab work, but it needs to be drawn on the order of a physician. And so if you, if you have diabetes and hypertension and you're not seeing your primary care doctor routinely, then most likely you're not getting looked at for these problems. The, the second step is to recognize when, when kidneys are, are dysfunctional, that is, hey, this dirt level in the blood work I've gotten is rising, and I need to then be referred to a nephrologist or a kidney doctor to see what, if anything, can be done, that is, what is reversible, and ensuring that your care regimen, which largely means being on the right medications, controlling diabetes, controlling hypertension, ensuring that uh, dietary adjustments are made where appropriate, are all part of the discussion with the patient. Those are things that I think nephrologists are particularly good at relative to other types of providers, because that's where our head is most of the time. But when you have a large enough data set with, with the labs that you 
uh, that I mentioned and with a variety of other information about patients, um, you can start to make some predictions about, you know, in a population of 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 patients, which ones are more likely to progress? That is, which ones are more likely to experience that continued decline in kidney function that may result in the need for renal replacement therapy, transplant, et cetera? Um, within our integrated kidney care program at DaVita, we use a variety of models to help identify those patients. Uh, that, that information falls into the category of risk scoring. And, and risk scoring is a really interesting place because what risk scoring does, it allows you to identify within a, a large cohort of patients, which patients probably deserve some more attention. And, and that attention really means that that patient is going to need some more frequent visits, perhaps, certainly a, a closer relationship with care providers so that whatever can be modified can be modified, that is the right drugs, the right diet, et cetera. And then of course, ensuring that as that patient gets closer to the need for dialysis, the, the, the patient is given every opportunity to educate themselves about end-stage kidney disease treatments, home dialysis, transplant, in-center dialysis, and, and make choices that would get them to a place of comfort. In my mind, you know, and as someone that still sees patients uh, each week, I would say that that the psychology of this says, when I'm walking into the exam room, if I know this patient falls into a, a bundle of high-risk patients, it gives me a little greater impetus as a physician to make sure I'm a, more aggressively having those conversations. No patient I've ever taken care of says, I want dialysis. They all say, I don't want dialysis. And of course, they don't want dialysis. Who does? But it means that as the nephrologist, my job is then to push them to say, look, I know you don't want dialysis but I need you to go through this education. I need you to make some positive decisions about what you would want to do in the event your kidneys fail. Because while these risk models are helpful, they're not 100% predictive of who's gonna end up on dialysis or not. And so as we weave these predictive models into the work we do, it helps both our integrated care uh, employees, that is the employees who work with physicians and the patients, to focus on the subset of patients that probably have the greatest likelihood of progression, and when shared with our clinicians in a variety of ways, that same risk modeling can then drive certain conversations within the exam room. And when I think about this, you know, the risk models are hard because a lot of times pay, uh, providers and, and others will say, well, gosh, what's driving the risk model? Can I just address that issue? Like, you know, it's an age or a gender or whatever thing that comes up in the risk model. And I'm not saying those are drivers. I'm just using those as examples. But, but the point is that, that the risk model, you can't address necessarily the same drivers that are driving the risk model, you have to then take a holistic view as a clinician. And so what, what I find even more interesting, and, and I think gets at the quote I was giving, perhaps in a little more detail than that quote, is that ultimately, whatever risk model you're using, it needs to drive closer inspection of the patient's care progress, or I'm sorry, care um, pathways. It needs to uh, inspire greater understanding of the patient's overall health status, such that you find the things that can be adjusted and, and then help adjust those things to change the patient's trajectory of uh, toward end-stage kidney disease. Well, Adam, let's now talk about big data and innovation at DaVita. I mean, with your leadership, the company's driving innovation by improving care delivery, developing cutting-edge technology, and advancing new models of care. Now, the glance the kidney care delivery innovations at DaVita are quite impressive. I mean, they were resulting in improvement in survival rates for dialysis patients by 23%. There's been a 12% cost improvement in dialysis. There's now 25,000 patients on home dialysis, which is the largest population of home dialysis patients in the country. There's a 44% lower hospitalization rate for patients in your CKD and dialysis education programs. And this has led to DaVita being ranked number three in innovation among healthcare medical facilities on the 2022 Fortune World's Most Admired Companies list. And when we were discussing innovation a few weeks ago before this podcast, you were talking about the complexity of big data and how delivering care for CKD patients is not as simple as just deploying an AI solution. I mean, you were telling me how 
you know, each patient has to be considered a project in and of themselves and how each patient needs good project management. I mean, just like we would have in like a, a Gantt chart, but we need like a personalized Gantt chart almost for each patient to document all the activities that are occurring across the care continuum. Can you discuss the DeVita approach to innovative care delivery for CKD patients and how has that informed your understanding of value-based care as a clinician? I mean, what can our listeners learn from this approach to innovation as they approach innovation and care delivery within their respective organizations? Yeah, thank you, Eric. The, the notion of innovation in healthcare is is sometimes mildly amusing to me because healthcare in general is is far behind many of the consumer things that I think we all experience every day. Um, and certainly, you know, the recent rise of, of intense interest around language models and the kinds of activities that are going on in AI over the last five or six months is, is a degree of intensity that I've not previously seen. But I think it's important to remember that, that the first piece of innovation in technology and healthcare is ensuring that you're doing the right things for the patients. And so to do that, it, it does require, I think, a much higher threshold of ensuring that the data you have is good, that is, the data is true, is accurate, is complete, and that any, any analysis of that data results in something that can be validated prior to putting it in front of a clinician who will either use it as the basis for a decision or, some instances, as the decision itself. And so I think in that context, DeVita walks a, a, a thoughtful, but as aggressive as is appropriate line in trying to ensure that our patients, and more importantly, the patient data, is giving us as much value as possible. For chronic kidney disease patients, that is patients who are not yet on dialysis, their data is often very fragmented. Um, they will often be cared for by a wide variety of practitioners across multiple specialties. In many instances, even though we have health information exchanges and certainly large commercial EHRs, you know, the, 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 there's not often the kinds of discrete data that I would love to have in mass, which is things around patient lab information, certain other discrete diagnostic data that just don't show up in electronic health records in a way that's easily searchable or integrated into these systems. And so we have been able to pull data and gather data together to ensure that we have, as I talked about, the risk models in place to identify those high-risk patients. Moreover, you know, within DeVita and my role, we, we have a number of tools that are that we've either developed for sale to nephrologists or for use by nephrologists who are credentialed in our facilities. So for instance, we offer our own nephrology-specific office electronic health record, which is our, our own configured version of the Epic EHR. We call it CKD EHR. And it is, it is finely tuned, in my opinion, for ensuring that a nephrology practice who is a subscriber to the software has a wide variety of tools for delivering both face-to-face both -face care, as well as increasingly the necessary tools for delivering value-based care at the practice level. That, that's great, but, but in general, only some subset of the nephrologists in the entire country are using that tool for, for obvious reasons. And as a result, you know, it becomes incumbent upon us to be able to work with any nephrology practice. And this is where the data integration becomes, I think, so critical for pulling in information from health information exchanges, from direct connections to office EHRs in some instances, and, and ultimately really a good close working relationship because no matter how good of an integration you have, you still need to work with those practices to ensure that you're building the necessary flow of information so that high-risk patients are identified, high-risk patients are being cared for in a stepwise and progressive fashion, which ultimately I think gets to exactly what you mentioned, which is what I like to say, which is chronically ill patients are in many instances projects that need a personalized Gantt chart because some of this stuff is well known. For instance, as a patient ends up getting closer to the need for dialysis, we know that there's a series of things that are very important for decision or for patients to decide upon to get them to a home modality if it's appropriate, transplant if appropriate, et cetera. And so those steps are, are fairly routinized in terms of what we know they need to do, but keeping track of those steps for any one person especially when you're working across organizations, a nephrology provider, as well as uh, say our integrated care employees, working together to ensure that those patients are getting those steps really does require the necessary patient tracking as like, like a project, as I said. And so, you know, as we continue to evolve our tools, it, it's really designed in, in ensuring that one, 
the tools that are being used at the point of care, that is for physicians, clinicians who are delivering face-to-face -face care, they have the data they need to make decisions about individual patients at the point of care. Second step up is that pay, that, that our providers and our, our, our employees, our teammates who use those tools have the necessary population level data to again, prioritize patients who are uh, at higher risk for progression or who fall out in other means of measuring them, maybe patients who are not, are not taking certain classes of drugs or patients who have not been seen with the right periodicity, meaning um, the, the right number of times per year that you would expect. And then lastly, ensuring that we have the necessary data tools to demonstrate how we as an organization are performing in various regions of the country or how providers that work with us and for whom we have data about their patients are performing relative to each other. And only when you think about data across all of those point of care, population, and then organizational and provider performance, do you really start to see how you know a big data set can play into the role of care? Of course, it all takes work, it all takes time. And, and so the takeaway is, you know, you can never start too early trying to understand your data. You can never have enough resources to ensure that you're delivering the right data at the right place at the right time. And ultimately, you have to be choosy about what you give back to your clinicians because the clinicians have a certain capacity and they can only ingest so much information and prompting and other kinds of information at the point of care such that they can deliver the necessary next step in that patient's uh, healthcare journey. Well, Adam, listening to you talk about innovation and in kidney care, I'd really be remiss if I didn't ask you to comment on Mozart Medical. And that's the new venture between Davida and Medtronic that was established to develop new kidney care technologies with a specific focus on at-home treatments. And the company launch was announced just a few weeks ago in a press release and was described as an independent new company committed to reshaping kidney health and driving patient-centered technology solutions. Could you provide a brief update on the new venture and how it will help bring about more innovation in kidney disease treatment by revolutionizing home dialysis? Yeah, I, I actually have not been terribly involved in that process. But what I would say is that I think Davida and Medtronic are two leaders in the industry and that we are well positioned to both, I think, understand the needs of our patients and help iterate on tools and, and techniques and supplies that would result in more cost efficient and better quality care through home therapies. And whether it's peritoneal dialysis or home hemodialysis, at the end of the day, I think being part of large organizations that have a deep understanding of the patient population and the needs of those patients, as well as how to deliver large volumes of care at scale is really the opportunity we're trying to capitalize on. And certainly I am excited about it. Well, thanks for the brief uh, overview. Uh, certainly uh, a timely news item. And, you know, Adam, I, I also wanted to ask you about private sector innovation and opportunity for partnerships. I mean, since we've had the uh, announcement from the last administration with the Advancing American uh, Kidney Health Initiative, there's been a noticeable uptick in private sector investments and value-based kidney care partnerships and expanded service offerings. And, there's probably never been a better time as an investor or an entrepreneur to be in the kidney space. I mean, it's a perfect confluence of events that one can make some pretty intelligent bets on, you know, how to create innovation and have that coincide with the the transition to value-based care. And it's a great opportunity uh, for value-based kidney care innovation. And I can't help but think about the opportunity for creative partnerships between providers, payers, specialty care management companies that are focused on kidney disease and dialysis organizations. And, you know, DaVita has an innovation arm called the DaVita Venture Group that works with companies across various healthcare verticals that includes digital health and medical devices, diagnostics, pharma. The group invests in companies that are aligned with DaVita's mission of improving quality of life for patients with kidney disease and other chronic conditions. And uh, DVG also provides resources and expertise to help these early stage companies grow and succeed. And they offer mentorship and access to DaVita's clinical expertise, patient population, and provide assistance with product development and commercialization. You know, I, I just wanted to ask you, Adam, if, if maybe you could provide some insights on how DaVita approaches the development of new and innovative solutions so the market can improve patient outcomes and um, we could build more solutioning for the industry to, to transform kidney care as we know it. 
Yeah, it's it's a great question, Eric, and thank you for that. A couple thoughts at a high level. In general, our patient population represents a very small group of the overall healthcare marketplace, but as you guys have pointed out repeatedly, a very expensive group. And when we think about opportunities in the private sector, whether it's a software company, a, a clinical company, whatever, I think our, our goal is to think about how those technologies could be best applied to our patient populations, whether it's chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease. I think any patient population we serve is in our focus. And the way I think about our, our ventures group is that they look for opportunities to work with organizations who are either developing something specifically for the kidney space and help them deliver it at scale, meaning how do you take a small company and make it available to, you know, at, at a national level, which turns out to be quite challenging, or we take companies that have, uh, or organizations that have perhaps some opportunity to impact the kidney space. And we, we work to emphasize that aspect of their portfolio. There's a variety of ways that go about that. But at the end of the day, if you think about a company that's developing a, a clinical product or a clinical process or something like that, you, you, they may not lean toward kidneys first just because of the small number of patients, irrespective of the cost. Nevertheless, being able to have models of care, alternative payment models or, or various capitated payment arrangements in which we are, we being the collective kidney community, are incentivized to provide care earlier and perhaps more aggressively before these patients end up as very sick, gives us the opportunity to then help bring companies who can offer value in those activities to the marketplace either faster or more broadly. It, it, it is very exciting, I have to say. I, it's it's not something I anticipated doing as part of my job. I I, I dabble in it a little bit, um, and it is it's really fun to meet such a wide range of super smart and very innovative people. Uh, I've also acquired a great appreciation for just how challenging it is to come up with an idea in your garage and deliver it at scale within a couple years. Um, that is far more difficult, and it makes my appreciation for you know the founders of various companies through the years even that much greater, given what I'm seeing in, in terms of how hard it is to, to bring something from an idea to a, a deliverable at-scale product. Well, Adam, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Can't thank you enough. And I'd love to invite you to think, you know, back to the questions we've asked and your responses. Is there anything else that we missed or that you'd like to add on to anything? You know, I would just say that in my role at DeVita, you know, I am I'm afforded an opportunity and a perspective that I, I think is somewhat unique, but but I would, it, it, relative to other places in the kidney care world, we, I think, are poised both from a people and a process and a tool standpoint, all three of those, to, to be very successful in value-based care. And it's, it's really exciting because as a nephrologist, you know, I started a practice in 2006 when I left fellowship, and I called it the Kidney Health Center of Maryland. And I did that because I was at least under the impression that if I did things right for my chronic kidney disease patients, I could make better lives for them. And it was really hard, really, really hard to do this. And it's really exciting to be part of an organization and to be involved in the process of, of starting to see what I would say is the maturation of these programs and these processes and these tools such that we can live I think in a more realistic way, the kind of hope that I had when I started my practice in 2006, it's really cool. And so I, I think, you know, if that excitement didn't come through enough, I think it, I, I would like to just state it now for the record. <laughs> well, Adam, you definitely are a leader in value-based care. We're excited to learn about the great work that DeVita is doing. Do you have any parting thoughts on uh, leadership in this new era of value-based care? I mean, for those out there listening to this interview, what can they be thinking about in terms of, you know, winning the race to value? Feel free to share any uh, parting thoughts of optimism. We need all the hope we can get, I think, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, value-based care is hard. I think we all recognize that. And and it's it's hard for a variety of reasons. But but what I've what I've said, I think, to a, a variety of folks through the years, and, and certainly I don't consider myself an expert on this, but I would say that you know, aligning physicians to behave in ways that are different than the than 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 they the ways they were trained to work in a fee for service system is really, I think, the the last mile of this activity. And while I think many ACOs, especially in in 
in areas where the, the ACO is part of a hospital system that employs all the physicians, have, have some more levers to pull, if you will, in terms of getting physicians and care providers growing in the same direction. That's not as true as you move broad, more broadly to the community of care that involves practices and dialysis centers and various organizations and other types of specialties. And so aligning those folks and spending your effort in thinking about how am I going to get all the various actors to, to think about this as a problem that they want to solve, and then giving them the right information such that they can make appropriate judgments at the appropriate time is, in my mind, the hurdles. And, and that takes tooling, meaning you have to have the right IT tools, you have to have the right processes, and, and ultimately, you have to have patience with this. And, and I think that's the struggle because so much of it, so many of us are, are very focused on success in business, which is totally rational in a, in a world in which, you know, we have to write paychecks and we have to make the bottom line. But having said that, you know, finding a pace that allows you to develop these skills internally of your, of your organization and then getting those clinicians aligned to deliver on all these things we've talked about is, is I think, the struggle where I would probably spend the most energy if that was, you know, the, the area that I spent the most time in. Well, Adam, we can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the show. We appreciate that inspiration, and please continue to do all that great work. Uh, we we certainly need a transformation in kidney care, and it, it definitely uh, appears that DeVita is leading the way. I appreciate the time, guys. This was great. Thanks so much.